Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, as always, Sean DeVries. Our food brings people together and promotes community, and at Principle of Hospitality, we are here to disrupt the current perceptions of what the hospitality industry can achieve in today's ever-evolving and challenging environment. So that's why we're so proud to partner with Chef's Hat, the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia on this season of Poe. Now, Earl Canteen is a Melbourne staple in the CBD hospitality landscape with many locations providing amazing breakfast and lunch options as well as some of the best coffee around. They aim to create a culture where quality produce, which is both local, seasonal vegetables and sustainable ethically raised meats are a standard offering in this section of the industry. Now, Earl has always been one of my favourite spots and uh, was a great introduction to what Melbourne culture was like when I first arrived here over six years ago. So it's great to sit down with the co-founder, Jackie Middleton. Hey, Jackie, how are you? I'm well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say all those nice things about Earl. That's my pleasure. It's, um, it's a long way in the going. It just feels like such a lifetime ago that we started this, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It came in its really booming heydays when you arrived in Melbourne. Well, yes, and I, I think it will come back to a, um, a booming time and I want to talk about how you've, you know, how you and Simon have scaled this brand um, because, I mean, we're having you back on this podcast. Um, I'm making a joke about it as I sometimes do when I have to re-record podcasts, but we recorded this in happier times um, a couple of months ago. Uh, I say happier times because we weren't in lockdown and now we're when we record this in sort of mid to late August, um, we're unfortunately in our sixth lockdown in Melbourne and... Um, to have you have a chat uh, with me and, and, our, and our listeners um, during this time, I really do appreciate it because the CBD market is just um, obviously such a challenging uh, part of the industry to be a part of right now. So I appreciate you coming back. Um, let, let's talk about how how Earl started because I know it's such a you know it's such a great story, right? And it's something you'd be so proud of. So how did you start out the brand? Mm, um, thank you. Yes. Well, funny enough, I'm actually sitting here now. It's a bit weird sitting in an empty cafe. Um, mm. I came into the city just to get a bit of headspace away from my kids learning from home and um, to have a bit of a look around the city. Yeah. Um, and we've also got two stores trading at the moment. So um, they like to see a friendly face. <laughs> get a copy. There's not many other customers. Yeah, I Earl started um, a bit more than 11 years ago and I was consulting and um, as a food consultant, I'd been working as a menu designer prior to this and worked in restaurants for a really long time Mm -hmm. and um, loved hospitality. My husband um, had only worked in restaurants too as a sommelier and restaurant manager and things like this and we'd just worked in high-end restaurants and I went and worked for a little catering company called Peter Rowland. Yes, um, just a little and one. And yeah. I was their menu designer. So I did Birdcage for a couple of years, like in mm. the really crazy days with Emirates and Meyer and all this shebang on the front row. And so I did some menu designing and after um, finishing with them, I was like, you know, I want to kind of keep doing some consulting, but I hated kind of being a freelancer and did, you know, bits of, you know, it's a tough way to make a living. Yes. Um, And did bits and pieces and started thinking to myself, why is everyone in the cafe market, which I kind of was a very fond participant in, um, you know, eating one every day. Like I virtually never cooked for myself when I was a restaurant person. I would, Mm. you know, eat in a cafe for breakfast, then have staff meal at 4.30 or 5 o'clock and then work a shift and then drink too much booze and go to bed and do it again the next day. Um, (laughs) 
why is everyone competing on um, price instead of competing on quality? Like my, you know, restaurant friends were. Um, anyway, it got me thinking and I kept reading about different things um, overseas about, you know, fancy sandwiches. And we didn't really have a word for a hot sandwich in Australia at the time. And I yes. kind of conceived this idea of a hot sandwich and thought, I betcha that this will this, this has got some legs. And I, honest to God, like there's the Earl story of the two hungry waiters. I can actually read it to you while I'm sitting here in the shop. Okay. Two hungry waiters spend a lot of time in restaurants watching chefs make sandwiches with ingredients as fine as those destined for diners plates. It was the ultimate staff meal and it gave me an idea. Fancy sandwiches made every day. <laughs> and the honest to God truth was I was working as a menu designer I was working, um, you know, doing the odd cameo shifts in friends' restaurants in the evening, like begging me up, going, Jackie, just come in and do a shift, we're short, you know? Yeah. And go, okay. <laughs> Seeing the chefs slice off, you know, the edge bits of the beautiful ribeye and, you know, stashing it to the side of their board and making a sandwich at the end of service. <laughs> and, I was kind of, and then, you know, dipping it in the jus or the whatever. And I'm like, man, I want one of those, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I thought, there's a there's a model here. And so I started thinking about it anyway. Simon and I were having a coffee. We used to live in Balaclava. And um, at Wall 280, we're having a coffee, one of the few places that you could actually get a coffee in that area at the time. Yes. Um, and I said, I've got this idea. What do you reckon? And he's like, oh, yeah, do you want to do it? And I was like, um, okay. <laughs> and so we, so we sold our two-bedroom apartment in Balaclava. Yeah that we'd funded from working as waiters forever mm -hmm. and, you know, having decent tips at the time. Um, poor starving waiters now with no tips and obviously no jobs either. Yeah. Um, and we sold our apartment and threw all of the cash into opening Earl. Um, so we've learned a lot because I've designed 11 of these now, um, of various incarnations of different projects. And I know we spent far too much money on far too many things. <laughs> it's <laughs> easy I'm when you look back. Sitting in it now, sitting in this beautiful, you know, table top of the timber that will go on forever that was recycled and cost far too much at the time. But um, so Earl started from those kind of beginnings of us just being a bit, um, me having a good idea and us throwing caution into the wind and just opening something. Yeah. Um, it wasn't all um, great for the first few months, I have to say. We, we're very devastated to see that the people were still walking past us and queuing at the caffeinatics across the way from us for their coffee and going, we make great coffee. Um, <laughs> yes. Why is no one coming here? So we yeah. spent quite a few months sitting in the window trying to build confidence that you can change your ant trail, as I like to call them through the city, mm. the habits of people have buying coffee and um, come try somewhere different. And it just grew through just really good customer service, which I think our restaurant um, credentials gave us that ability to remember people's names and know what they think is important. Just mm. know their coffee, know their name, you know, give them a smile and remember that their kids got their, you know, soccer match on Thursday and that, you know, ask how it went. Um, yes. And we built something out of that. And so, you know, now we're sitting at six CBD sites and a um, catering production kitchen in Cremorne. Wow. When? Oh, 11 years later. 11 years later. So when mm. when you think back on that you know on that first that first location, um, mm. how did you how did you build that customer base? Like how did you move those people? Was it was it literally just as you said then, like just slowly remembering and knowing that they would um, tell people they knew and that kind of stuff? Because it was like two thousand and ten, mm. right? The water so. 
sorry, 2010, yes. Yeah. Um, April 28th, 2010 was the first service we did. Mm. Um, water cooler talk is really important, I think, in hospitality businesses, yeah. um, especially in then when social media wasn't as strong as it is now. Yes. Um, but also we, I feel like, I say we got lucky. I would hope to think it was an educated guess, but the location we're in with in the NAB building um, above us, so 5,000 people above us, magistrates mm. court across the way. Um, we were really focused on a great customer service. Simon and I were 35, so we were a bit long in the tooth to be first-time hospitality operators. Mm -hmm. So we kind of, we'd done it all, you know, so we, we just knew what to do. So that kind of the obvious thing for the people around us. I also had the good fortune should I say good fortune? Yeah, good fortune of um, being a food blogger for a really long time. And mm -hmm. I, um, prior to this, I think I was a frustrated menu designer working at Peter Rowland and um, I felt like I would write all these amazing menus and, you know, I kind of missed eating in restaurants a lot because I was working the day and Simon's working at nights at Rockpool Bar and Grill or Attica yeah, at wow. the time. Um, and I wasn't eating out as much. So I was reading all these food blogs and I went, these people don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> so I was like, I can do better than that. So I started writing a food blog um, and um, I kind of grew into that and knowing a lot of people in the local food blogging scene and that kind of morphed into Twitter and food blogs kind of fell off the scene and Twitter became really important. Mm. And a lot of those people were um, people that would have catch-ups, really kind of quick little catch-ups with food bloggers every couple of months and um, I happened to have catch up you know when we just signed the lease at Earl and I had this kind of idea that I would just keep as I was doing with my personal Twitter account eating with Jack which was my old blog name right um, that I would just kind of create Earl a blog uh, a Twitter account and start just tweeting behind the scenes stuff and people right. were really excited it was mostly my twitter friends right but yes. those people became the influencers you know <laughs> so that kind of became like this weird tsunami of when we first opened all my you know twitter friends and blogger friends were all really interested and supportive so they came in they started writing about it and suddenly the traditional media going hang on a minute why are all of these twitter people which we're kind of scrambling at the heels to catch up with yeah why are they writing about this place? We should check it out. And traditional media then just went crazy for us as well. I think it was kind of this perfect storm of um, social media influencing traditional media before the tr when the traditional media was still very powerful. Yes. I feel, you know, very sad that the traditional food media isn't as powerful as you buy the paper and read good food or Epicure or whatever. Um, and I haven't done that for quite some time now. So, you know, we, we had that good fortune of being printed about and written about in everything from all the glossy food magazines to all of the um, newspapers, um, lots and lots and lots of it. So we ended up going from a couple of months thinking that, you know, are we going to be able to make this work? Like we've stuffed up where restaurant people that are now opening a cafe and we don't know what the hell we're doing yeah. to, holy cow, there's a queue out the door and around the corner and Simon, run out and do a count of how many people in that queue because I've only got 25 portions of bread left and right. we're screwed. Um, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So when did you – I was going to say, when did you decide to do your second site, Jackie? Because I'm, I'm, um, in, I'm always interested in that because especially as brands scale, 
Like yeah. to go from oh. one to two and to go from two to three, like is really, really important. So how did you guys decide to do your second yeah. site? We, I think we were probably, again, naive enough to think that if we could do one, we could do a few more. Um, even early in the game when we had the queues out the door, mm. we, as I said, we sold our apartment to do the first site and we were living in this, what we call the shoebox in the sky down in South, um, just on the other side of South Bank. It was horrible. Like um, we knew that with the business being buoyant and it being, you know, somewhat successful and lots of people coming in, that business and we could see that if we keep living simply which is what we were doing that we could maybe have a go at a second site we actually started talking to some industry friends and they were like oh you know we know someone that might be a good match for you as a business partner and we had a chat to this um man for god it was like a year and then nothing <laughs> eventuated and um you know, we got dumped by an email um oh wow okay and <laughs> Um, Zach had just been born, my son, and he's now nine. Um, done my email and we're like, someone's like, we can do it ourselves. And so I, when Zach was, you know, nine months old or something, he started daycare and by then I'd kind of signed, we'd kind of worked out that the business didn't need me day to day anymore and Simon was kind of running it and we'd employed people to do all the things that I'd been doing before, which was actually making every single sandwich in the place and every right. single salad. Wow. So we'd kind of trained well enough to have that, someone else doing that because obviously I said I'd had a baby in that yes. time too. So um, I actually started doing a bit of consulting again as a way to make some really good money, um, you know, and to be able to have, some separation because Simon and I, though we've been together for a very long time, we realised it was probably not great to be working, you know, 14 hour days together <laughs> and with a young baby at home. Yes. So I was consulting and um, actually got privy to um, a couple of sites at the other end of the city at Collins Place that things were changing in and they were thinking it was a really interesting retail manager working there and she had employed the company I was consulting for to do some reviews of um, some food and beverage operators there. And I'd done a lot of that before when I was freelancing. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like bread and butter work for me. And yep. though I enjoyed it, I kind of always felt like I was working on the wrong side of the law. Like I was like <laughs> working for the landlord to tell the operators yes. why they're doing a crap job. Yes. Um, and it didn't kind of sit well with me as a hospitality person. Um, <laughs> and that kind of finished and, we started thinking about where a second site would be and Simon actually randomly got a call, not knowing because we have different surnames because I never took his name. Right. Um, them not knowing that I was the same person involved with Simon um, right. and I'd kind of kept the Earl part of my CV separate to, to this consulting I was doing mm -hmm. with a third party. And they said, oh, we've got a site in Collins Place. Would you consider coming and having a look at for a site? And, you know, <laughs> Simon was like, okay, I'll come and have a look. So I kind of went in the sunglasses along as well. That's going to be great, you know. Anyway, we, um, we ended up scraping together enough money and doing a deal ourselves and um, getting that site going. So, wow. And it was all just about, we, you know, the term now bootlegging it, you know, or, you know, we did, we did it ourselves. So I was just saving some money and yeah. um, opening. And it was, again, you know, a, a fairly simple fit out, but a totally self-contained kitchen. So they could operate as two separate units, mm -hmm. um, each of the stores. So we're still doing all of our own production in store each day. So, you know, we might finish service at four o'clock, but we might be still there until seven o'clock at night doing, making meatballs or making mm -hmm. granola and that type of prep type jobs like a really traditional restaurant might work where they do prep in the morning and service we'll yes. be doing it inversely so doing service and then doing prep and going home 
Right. Okay. So yeah. So the second one worked that way, just through um, being stubborn to actually get it going to prove um, to ourselves that we could, mm-hmm. um, and that was really cool in that we had created enough of a vibe amongst it that the first day we opened, um, we had a queue. Um, wow. and it was really fun. It was really um, felt really. Humbling. Um, proud that yeah. people, yeah, proud that people knew enough about us that we would, you know, Broadsheet wrote about us that day that, you know, in time, out, I think Time Out had yet to launch, but Broadsheet wrote about us that day that, you know, we opened the second one and yeah. all these great things. And I was kind of like, cool, you know, there's some legs to this multi-site stuff. Yes. And as we found going down this track with the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and seventh and eighth when we got to the eighth, mm. you know, that... Um, the brand kind of supports multiple other sites opening and that kind of awareness um, because, you know, when Earl was brand new and when we had the queues out the door, and I actually, I should say, I actually don't like queues. I I would rather my customers don't queue. I actually appreciate their time. I don't mm. want to, them to think of them being a, a food slave waiting for me to make this perfect sandwich for them. Um, Fair enough. And we got much better so they didn't have to be queuing forever yes um maybe sometimes to our detriment when we opened it emporium um we actually didn't have a queue and lots of the businesses around us did and we didn't have a queue because we were delivering food in three minutes like my my oh my god it's running late is four and a half minute mark and we you know synchronize clocks in the kitchen to the printer time there at the pass and look and go guys this is sitting at three minutes we need to get it out now like you know i'd systemized it to the way that i wanted that speed um so we didn't have a queue and everyone thought oh they mustn't be very good they don't have a queue (laughs) (laughs) but you know i did a good job on getting the systems fast so yes yeah so the um you know and that was through just doing lots of stuff training and working through the processes and again, you know, opening a second and a third site is great because you've got people that have worked with you long enough that you know they know what they're doing from day one. There's yeah. no, it's no BS. You know, it's <laughs> great. You know, I um, we've been celebrating a little bit in the last few months or this year, and that we've had um, Praben, a guy in our kitchens, worked for us for ten years, and now our operations wow. manager Alyssa's worked for us for ten years as well. So, wow. um, you know, there's this intel that our staff have that can operate at Earl very um, very easily and open an Earl very easily, mm-hmm. um, even without sunlight being there. Yeah. That must make you feel really, so that's really how, that's happy. That's how you roll. You have to hang on to your staff, get good ones, hang on to them, train them really well and be meticulous about your training. Like an Earl recipe is to the gram. We measure bread with rulers. Like if I... If I got up now and tried to find a ruler in the kitchen here, uh, it would actually have a mark at 17 centimetres where everyone's cut the bread against the ruler to make sure it's 17 centimetres each wow. time when they make a baguette or a ciabatta. So, wow. um, yeah. That's incredible. Um, I knew we talked about that last time, but that's that's that still um, is so impressive to me, like the fact that you really um, and the brand really cares about the quality to that extent. Like it's... It's it's something that's quite. I, I hope you understand, Jackie. It's something that's quite unusual, like um, in a really positive way that you guys have gone to mm. that extent for such a quality product. Like it's um, it's it's also been it's also held us challenges. So you mm. know we've had plenty of people say, "Why don't you open in Sydney?" or "Why don't you open in Brisbane?" And, sure. You know, and trying to 
source and operate in a different city um, would be a challenge. Um, I also like my kids, so I don't want to kind of just run off to another city for weeks on end. Yeah, um, yeah understand. So, but try, yeah, trying to source it differently and um, make compromises without it being evident that we've made compromises. So making compromises in systems to make things smarter. So, for example, when Earl first started, we had a raw egg mayonnaise. Mm -hmm. um, and I was in the kitchen and I made it every day and I knew it was great. And to be honest, I'd never thought about it too much in regards to the food safety of that. Sure. Again, I, my, my background was watching chefs make mayonnaise in restaurants, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to use a pasteurized product mm. or, you know, worth something from a bucket. Um, so um, I just made raw egg mayonnaise every day. Um, and then it got to the point where it started making me nervous and there was a salmonella outbreak with one of the really high-end egg producers mm -hmm. um, probably eight years ago now, and I started worrying about it a little bit. So we, I started recipe testing around and doing reading and worked out my own method that was actually approved by the FDA in the States um, wow. to pasteurise egg yolks. And so we started pasteurising our egg yolks wow. um, to this recipe that had been done by this food scientist in the States. <laughs> and it's still the same recipe that we were using up until a couple of years ago when I found a small free-range um, egg producer that could actually sell me pasteurised egg yolks. Um, wow. Because no, there's um, no pasteurised there's no free range pasteurized egg yolks available in the Australian market until a couple of years ago. So we were actually splitting eggs in my production kitchen up until Gosh. maybe two and a half years ago, splitting eggs in my production kitchen to make pasteurized eggs and tipping the whites down the sink because we didn't have anything to do with them apart from frowns. You know, sure. even contact macaron businesses and go, Hey guys, would you like some whites? <laughs> you know, and Simon's be like, why aren't we just buying, you know, yolks or buying mayonnaise like everyone else does? And I'm like, no, it just tastes like crap. And you know, I don't want to do that. It's like a compromise I'm not willing to make. Yes. You know, so... Um, there's more solutions now, and I think I maybe got a little bit better as a, um, a menu designer, being able to have a bit more time, being able to source. Um, sure. That's what I've been working on a little bit with the airport site that mm -hmm. we'll hopefully be opening later this year, um, that we're doing in partnership with Delaware North. Mm -hmm. um, but again, just and the business being big enough that I can maybe be a bit bossy with suppliers and say, no, I want this. Can you get it for me? Yes. Or I'll find someone else who will. Um, <laughs> Good. I was, I was going to ask you, like, um, we talked about, you know, the store development and knowing when to open different stores. Mm. But, like, you've obviously got a production kitchen as well. When, yeah. when do you guys decide to decide the best time was to do that production kitchen? Because in <laughs> brands that I've worked in before, right, like, mm. sometimes production kitchens can be a really great idea, but you can lose a lot of money in production kitchens in order to, you know, you can actually the brand, make your business right? fall over with a production kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when did you do that? We did it slowly. So we um, had 500 Berkham, had Collins Place. We then did Emporium mm -hmm. and we were using Emporium and Collins Place. Why the hell were we doing both? I have no idea. <laughs> On one day each of the week, doing some type of production, which would then be on the weekend, sorry, using that production then to support Emporium because it's a tiny kitchen, yes. right? Yep. It's a 20 really square, me square meter kitchen. Mm -hmm. 
So they couldn't do those messy things. And they were busy on the weekend too because mm-hmm. um, they traded seven days. So we started doing that like this hatch job and then we would use our car to move things between the stores and the freezers and the fridges and it was a, this ridiculous circumstance. Um, I can't remember what led to it, but we found a site on St Hilda Road that was um, essentially an, like a bit of a greasy spoon cafe, but it had a big kitchen and cool room out the back. Mm-hmm. And we paid some turnkey money to get access to that site. Everyone was telling us, you need to open on St Kilda Road, but there's no good food down here. So <laughs> we're like, okay, we'll open a small cafe in the front and use the back of it um, with good access and mm-hmm. a good kitchen as our production kitchen. So that was our production kitchen. Um, the cafe in the front of it never really worked. It just ticked over but never really even paid its own bills. Mm-hmm. Um, but really within six, nine, about six or nine months of us have, using that as a production kitchen to support the three sites in the city and the small front of that store, we realised it was too small. Yes. Our catering had kind of catched up as well. So, you know, I kind of put my catering hat on from the past and went, hang on a minute, like, let's do some good sandwiches. Let's not use tip top. Um, And, you know, I purely was like, no points. Earl virtually never does points now either. I'm like, I'm an Mm -hmm. anti-point girl. Yes. Um, um, You know, so we were like cutting sandwiches in half and serving real sandwiches for catering and it kind of just started bubbling over. Um, And we realised this is getting a bit too much for this kitchen. Um... Simon happened to come across from Gumtree, funny enough, um, a production kitchen. I think our accountant was in Cremorne and he said, oh, there's some great stuff going around. Keep an eye on the area. And mm-hmm. There was a production kitchen for a sushi manufacturer in Cremorne that was on Gumtree. And it was essentially, he just wow. wanted to walk out. And I can't remember what it was now, but it was a crazy small amount of money, like less than 50K wow. like, to come in and take this whole warehouse with a fully fitted kitchen in the back. Whoa! He just wanted so he just wanted someone to come and take over the lease, effectively. Right. Yeah. Um, and we were kind of like, sure, right, let's take that. And we we're kind of like, sounds too good to be true. And we yep. kept working through it, and and it worked out. And it was crap timing because Arabella, my daughter, who's now five, was born. I think the week that we signed, the week that we actually took over the lease for that. Oh, so. Um, God. I actually didn't step into that kitchen until, you know, about a week and a half after we'd already been there. And my team had already set it up and was working in this kitchen that I was, I'd never been in. I was kind of like, oh, this is big business, you know. We've got a production kitchen and the team are working in it. I've never even been here yet. <laughs> wow. What a change. Um, yeah. So that was, that's the kitchen where we are now still. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's actually quite a large space. Mm-hmm. Um I, we would have hoped to have last year outgrown it and kept growing, but um, it's kind of brought back and now it's kind of Earl at home and stuff like that. But um, it's actually been a bit of a blessing for us too, because we've rethought the Earl model this year and it's supporting us a bit more. So Okay. Well, let, let's, let's talk about that a bit if we can. Obviously, we, you know, mm. we said at the start of the podcast that, you know, Earl is um, uh, largely a CBD business, right? Obviously, you're going to open up in the airport hopefully at the end of the year as you just said um Mm. but you know the last 18 months have been horrendous um for cbd cbd venues yeah um it has what have you guys learned over the last you know 18 months it's been a powerful thing for you and a and a a good thing for you moving forward um what have i learned i've probably learned to be more patient um It's in that small things in a business can 
adduct a lot. I think I've always been quite a... Um, Simon and I have always wanted to run a business that was very honourable. Yes. Um, we didn't want to be that place where the um, we didn't pay the bills and, you know, you'd be on short terms with suppliers and that we didn't want to bullshit around on staff and pay cash and stuff like that. So we've mm. always operated, you know, really legitimate business. Um, and that's done us well for COVID and that we had a really solid team of staff. We had really good systems in place and understanding of our financials. We didn't owe anyone any money. Mm. And because we just kind of built the brand organically, we don't have business partners that are expecting anything, you know. So it's yeah. just us, really. Um, you know, and a few small bank loans. Um, but most businesses have those and it's not much. Yeah. Um, we learnt that understanding our finances really well helped our business. We also went through a time in 2018 and 2019 where we made the business structure incredibly flat. So every store had its own company set up okay. um, because we were looking at the time to franchising. So a lot of our contemporaries in the multi-site market, so the Huxterburgers and stuff like that were franchising and we thought, you know, and lots of people were saying to us, why aren't you getting in on this? You know, can I, and we were getting calls and emails going, can I buy an Earl franchise? And we're like, oh, we're not even franchise ready. We're just a little company-owned business, you know. Yes. And yeah. we're like, maybe we should get in, get in on this. So we got ourselves set up for franchising. We actually have all the documents, all the legals are done. We spent a heap of money on it. Right. Um, but the benefit was when COVID came, we, you know, the business grants came out. We actually got a business grant for each site and many other um, – because they were a separate business. Separate and business, many other yeah. multi-site hospitality businesses – that grow organically like mine have, they just, you know, use the same company. It's all the same slush fund so of money one. that comes in and yep. they're not very organised financially. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the the two grand here um, meant that that could keep paying my electricity and my things like that on that particular site and it meant that it was smart. We also didn't owe our suppliers very much money, so we didn't have, you know, this circumstance where many other businesses find themselves in that they're kind of running 60, 90 days for businesses. Yeah. Um, so we, we paid virtually everyone weekly. So we are in a really good financial circumstance when that hit. So the thing I learned was at being, you know, clever with your money and being honest about your money as you've grown your business really helped us that we were kind of clean when COVID hit and we weren't vulnerable in that way. Yes. Um, we also had a corporate business that had employed people traditionally full-time because Simon and I had always thought of hospitality as being as a career, not just as a part-time job. Yep. Um, so all of our staff were pretty much full-time. So when JobKeeper came about, thank Christ, because um, it was so stressful not knowing what was going to happen to us before that. Yeah. Um, we ended up with from 80 staff with, you know, nearly 30 people on JobKeeper, which was really um, a lot in comparison to what I've since learned from a lot of other industry friends that, you know, I know people that three or four sites end up with three people on JobKeeper because um, yeah, right. everyone else was casual or part-time or um, visa staff. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that um, company culture of keeping the IP, um, you know, being smart with our finances, all that type of stuff, um, and Simon and I personally also making some 
sacrifices and living leanly like we did when we first opened the business for you know the last year and a half have meant that we've come out of this with actually not losing any sites yeah um we had coles we had the earl that was a trial program at coles taronga mm -hmm. that was trading and that closed after covid but that was a trial that had a, a set date that was meant to lapse anyway and we decided not to push on with that because it wasn't um, working for us. Right. Um, so, yeah, we didn't lose anything. So we're still sitting here in the city now and when we've been able to trade again and then close again and trade again and close again, mm. we're kind of sitting a bit pretty because lots of our contemporaries aren't around anymore or they kind of can't um, reopen as fast as we can. So It's been interesting um, to see, been... hasn't it? Yeah. Um, it's, um, I think what you just said is just gold. Like if, if people are going to take anything from this podcast, it's got to be what you just said in the last 10 minutes, right? Having, having a clean business structure, making sure they're all separate. So if, 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 if you have, do have multi-site locations, if, if something goes wrong with one location, they all don't fall. Making sure you keep people yep. on good terms, have really good conversations with your supply chain so they know where you're at um, and, and treat your staff with respect and pay them properly like i think yeah like <laughs> i'm i'm uh yeah it's just it's just it's obvious old-fashioned way of doing business isn't it i wouldn't do it any other way yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know is it old-fashioned i'm not sure i kind of i i'd hate that that be the truth but it feels like it is yeah i think um i i think what's come out and i you know obviously i talk with a lot of people i know you do as well jackie that i think the the blueprint which you've just outlined is now becoming a more normalised blueprint where I don't think Good. 10 to 15, 20 years ago it was. There was a lot of, you know, cash in hand work and all that kind of stuff and illegitimate People stuff. wouldn't take jobs with us unless we'd pay them cash in hand. Oh, and I'd be like, no, yeah. like we're, this, is, this is a real job. This is not, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is a career, like you just said, and, and um, that's, yeah. re that's really pleasing to hear um, that that's coming from mm -hmm. you. Um, how are you... How are you thinking about the brand? How are you and Simon thinking about the brand differently now that we have a culture which is obviously CBD is going to definitely come back and come back in a really, really heavy way when we have vaccina uh, vaccination rates up and, and people um, don't want to work from home every single day of the week. Um, but how are you thinking about the inner suburbs and even the outer suburbs and thinking how Earl can push into those regions as well as you know expanding your CBD footprint as well? Yeah, we, um, you know, would have been early, about this time last year, I kept looking at what was happening overseas and seeing, you know, Pret-a-Manger, which, you know, is amazing in the UK and I kind of position our grab-and-go range with how I'd, with where I could see that our range is going. Um, and they started going away from, you know, the inner city um, high streets to more inner urban suburban locations and I was thinking about how do we do that you know, and I could already see a lot of um, you know the cafes in my local neighborhood because I you know live in a, in a in in Melbourne as well mm -hmm. and those cafes were booming I was like you know we need to maybe get into this type of market mm -hmm. and but you know there's all this uncertainty when are the people going to come back to the city are they coming back to the city what's that work balance going to be yes my prediction my crystal ball tells me that people will come back to the city for some days of the week that they need to and some days they will work from home um mm -hmm. 
So, you know, we've with that in mind, we got approached to do an Earl in Richmond, which, you know, I haven't kind of talked about widely yet, but because I find it boring to talk about, oh, we're going to do something in nine months' time, <laughs> ten months' time. We made that mistake with the airport and two years later, here we are. Yeah, well. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we're opening at Earl in Richmond um, later in the year and that's going to be a good little trial for us to do something that's kind of out of the city um, and hopefully that, kind of along the roots of where there's young families and um, urban people that are going to come down and get a coffee or, you know, walk past, get their supermarket shop on their Friday morning after they've done the check-in and their boss knows that they're working and they bugger off to the cafe and the supermarket and get some stuff. Um, So we're hoping to capture that a little bit. Um, But I think the city will come back some part. And I also feel really buoyant from when we have been reopened, but we got back to trading at nearly 80% in May before as a group, 80%, which I was amazed at considering pretty much no one comes into the city on Monday and Fridays anymore. Yes. Um, They were from home days. Mm -hmm. So I felt that when people came back to the city, there was a vibe, like there was a catch up vibe. There was a, Mm. you know, coffees and I've had enough of eating my own soup at home. So I'm going to buy my lunch out on Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays for sure. Awesome. So um, Mm. that was really great. So I feel really buoyant that the city is still going to come back okay. Um, hence projects in the city for us and the airport people will travel again. My God, I'm definitely travelling again. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure you are too. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, you know, so we want to capture a little bit of that, but I also, you know, there's not much money around for us at the moment too. So we we pay for our new stores ourselves. So yeah. um, there's not too much business growth I can do when I'm turning over 10% that I would usually turn over at the moment, which is where we're at at the moment. So um, yeah. there might be dreams of how we can change this and maybe Richmond will be the nice little trial. So, mm-hmm. you know, the end of the year, if you hear of an Earl Richmond, come and support us if you want some more inner urban Earls, as people keep telling me. So Absolutely. Um, maybe that might be a thing. But who knows? <laughs> I'll definitely be there. I'm only down the road, um, sort of. Um, so that makes sense. Um, I was g- just a couple of questions before I let you go, if that's right, Jack. I was, mm. how how do you keep your team motivated during this time? Because you know, to stand up and and to to lock down and then stand up all these businesses six times, like that's mm. a, that's a lot for your team and for yourself and Simon, mm-hmm. obviously. But how how are you keeping them motivated day to day? Um. I'm fortunate to say that Simon and Alyssa, our operations manager, are the main people in contact with our team members. Luckily, the way that the structure worked last year with JobKeeper, so we had a lot of people on JobKeeper and we also had a lot of visa staff that didn't get JobKeeper and we supported them by giving them shifts when we opened and even paying them for shifts and coming in and doing work that we didn't even necessarily need just to keep them fed Um, because the government dumped them um so we we had that good fortune of having that continued job keeper because our business was dealt such a harsh blow last year we had continued job keeper until march this Mm -hmm. year Mm -hmm. um and so that good connection with those people with that um when that all changed and job keeper locked disappeared and then lockdown four came and um, they now giving us disaster payments. And so it's a little bit trickier to keep everyone as engaged because they don't actually need 
to get paid from Simon anymore. Simon's not mm. paying them. Um, so that's all just about communication. So, you know, you know, Simon and Alyssa spent weeks of, um, you know, early pandemic of, you know, sitting on the phone to staff and calling them, asking how they are, you know, how are you going? Do you have, you know, can you pay your rent? Have you got enough to eat? Like it was yeah. terrible times. Yes. Um, more of the, the visa stuff. Um and now just keeping people engaged, keeping them, you know, in teams. So we managed to do a little staff, you know, we've always had a good culture of knockoff beers, good restaurant tradition. Um, you know, so we carried that forward. We'd always have, you know, knockoff beers every, you know, couple of months. And, you know, our that's kind of become bigger than Simon and I. Now the staff actually organise it for themselves. And Simon gets cool. the invite, I think, if he wants to pay for the beers for the, the day. <laughs> Love it. Um, but, you know, we have a really amazing staff culture in that way. So keeping them engaged in that way that they actually want to work for us. Um, I think we're a bit no bullshit too in that they do want to keep working for us mm. because these, I think you, we've had plenty of people go away, work for other people and then ask, hi, can we have a job back? Um, <laughs> so we mustn't be too terrible. Yes. Um, so keeping them connected to us via JobKeeper and now by just keeping you know, the shifts rolling over, doing, you know, we've got two stores trading and so different people coming in and doing different shifts and keeping them engaged that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and hoping the suburban cafes don't steal our city staff again. <laughs> Fingers crossed, eh? Like Because they're busy and we're not. You yeah, know, so. yeah, exactly. The thing I was going to say is like I've never, like I would say this if you're not a guest on the podcast, but I have never, ever, ever had a bad experience at Earl. And I've gone to Earl a lot. Thank you. And, I, and I've deliber- I've also gone, um, even before we uh, had the podcast, but um, during uh, when the lockdown, you know, was lifted and that kind of stuff and I was doing some work in the city, like I wanted to make sure that I supported you guys and, and mm-hmm. never have I had a bad experience. And it's, um, it's, it's obviously a credit to you and Simon and the rest of your team who have done, you know, a fantastic, a fantastic job on building such an amazing brand. So, Thank you. Like, we guess people. Pardon? Yes, hospitality. Yeah, yes. yeah. But abs- yes, people. Yeah. Come in at one o'clock and ask for avocado on toast. If we're not getting screwed over by the lunch orders, we will do you an avocado on toast because we like being nice. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's just so so obvious. Um. So I I guess the last question I have for you, Jack, is like, what are you looking forward to towards the end of the year? Like, what what is keeping you going? What are you excited about before the end of twenty twenty one? Um. Personally, I've got some projects. I mean, I have another little non-Earl project we're working on and I don't mm-hmm. want to say her name out loud um, <laughs> because I don't want to jinx her, but um, we've got another project and it will happen at the end of the year or the beginning of next year. So that's kind of kept me going creatively, which has cool. been great. Awesome. Um, and obviously the two new Earls that are working on the airport and Richmond sites. Um, as a person, I'm just really looking forward to getting back to some type of normality of enjoying restaurants and cafes and that type of thing again and not having to re- keep reminding my kids, oh, we can't do that because it's closed or remember. Yeah. Um, I honestly feel like people in Melbourne are, you know, this torturous sixth lockdown now. I feel like it's got reminiscence of, oh, reminiscence of not even a word, it's got it's made me think about lockdown too and how it went on for so long. It's the same time of year. Time of year. Yes. And it was so buoyant um, when we got out of that last year. So I really am looking forward to that again. It's like the roaring 20s are coming again. <laughs> I know how good it can be. I'm yes. really actually excited that we're going to get to, you know, October and November and it'd be great again. Yes. And hopefully we're going to be in a stage where the lockdowns will um, 
hopefully stop. Stop. Um, <laughs> if we can believe the government. Yes. Um, <laughs> stop. Yeah. And people will stop getting sick and this type of stuff and it will be bloody amazing again. Um, I really do think it will. Yeah. I totally and we're totally ready agree. and raring for when people come back to the city. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I know a lot of people will be raring uh, to come in and, and visit you guys very soon when this lockdown has lifted, especially when... People hopefully. love it. They're so excited when they come back and they see the same, you know, brister again and we remember their bloody coffee because they've had nothing else to think about for a year and a half. So I, I think it's a really understated thing, right? As is if you go into... if I think... The I, I joke about it so much on the podcast, but I think so many people have better better connections with their barista than they do with certain people, certain fr- friends they have. Like the the fact yeah. you can go into it, you can go into a cafe. Someone remembers your name, remembers your coffee, gives you a smile, engages you in polite conversation, and says, "See you later. I hope you have a great day." And actually means it. That means so much to people's mental health, and hospitality is so much a part of community. You know. Absolutely, and I'm hoping we get the masks off in the cafes again so the baristas oh, can smile at people. Totally agree. Um, <laughs> it's not a nice way to work wearing a, a mask in a cafe all day, but um, no, anyway. Can't even imagine. Fingers crossed. Um, Jackie, what's the best way that people can uh, connect with Earl and, and have a look at where the locations are in Melbourne? Um, come and to our website, earlcanteen.com.au. Very simple, um, but we're quite active on Instagram and Twitter. We're friendly on, so... Um, some my personal friends actually find it easier just to ping me online than to send me a text message or call me. So well, that's how connected we are. But um, bloody come into the city when you can. So absolutely, yeah. I'll make sure I link that up in the show notes of this podcast. Jackie, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> thanks again for tuning into another episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really, really enjoyed it. As always, please comment, like, and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. We're making this content with the industry in mind, so we'd really appreciate you sharing it along. Thanks as well to our supporter, the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia, Chef's Hat, where the industry shops. And if you don't know us at Poe, Sash, my co-founder from Principal Design, has one of the best design agencies in Australia. So if you're looking for anything around strategy, branding, digital design, wayfinding, and graphic design, then you can find them at principaldesign.com.au and myself at Open Pantry Consulting for anything to do with systems and processes to make your business run even more smoothly. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Chef's Hat for supporting us. And until next time, stay safe.